a treatise on the religious affections. A spiritual application of an invitation or offer of the gospel consists in giving the soul a spiritual sense or relish of the holy and divine blessings offered, and also the sweet and wonderful grace of the offerer, and making so gracious an overture, and of his holy excellency and faithfulness to fulfill what he offers, and his glorious sufficiency for it, so leading and drawing forth the heart to embrace the offer and thus giving the man evidence of his title to and personal interest in the thing offered. And so a spiritual application of the promises of Scripture for the comfort of the saints consists in enlightening their minds to see the holy excellency and sweetness of the blessings promised. Also the holy excellency of the promiser, his faithfulness and sufficiency, thus drawing forth their hearts to embrace a promiser and thing promised, and by this means given the sensible actings of grace, enabling them to see their grace and so their possessive title to the promise, an application not consisting in this divine sense and enlightening of the mind, but consisting only in the words being born into the thoughts as if immediately then spoken, so making persons believe, on no other foundation, that the promise is theirs, is a blind application, and belongs to the spirit of darkness and not of light. When persons have their affections raised after this manner, those affections are really not raised by the word of God. The scripture is not the foundation of them. It is not anything contained in those scriptures which comes to their mind that raise their affections, but truly that effect, the strange manner of the word being suggested to their minds, and a proposition from thence taken up by them, which indeed is not contained in that scripture nor in any other, as that his sins are forgiven him, or that it is a father's good pleasure to give him in particular the kingdom, or the like. These are propositions to be found in the Bible, declaring that persons of such and such qualifications are forgiven and beloved of God, but there are none declaring that such and such particular persons, independent on any previous knowledge of qualifications, are forgiven and beloved of God. Therefore, when any person is comforted and affected by any such proposition, it is by another word, a word newly coined and not any word of God contained in the Bible. Some Christians have rested with a work without Christ, which is abominable. But after a man is in Christ, not to judge by the work is first not to judge from the word. For though there is a word which may give a man a dependence on Christ, without feeling any work, nay, when he feels none, is absolute promises. Yet no word given assurance, but that which is made to some work. He that believeth, or is poor in spirit, and so on, until that work is seen, has no assurance from that promising, quote, shepherd's parable. And thus many persons are vainly affected and deluded. Again, it plainly appears from what has been demonstrated that no revelation of secret facts by immediate suggestion is anything spiritual and divine, in that sense wherein gracious effects and operations are so. By secret facts I mean things that have been done or are come to pass, or shall hereafter come to pass, which do not appear to the senses, nor are known by any argumentation, 
nor any other way, but only by immediate suggestion of ideas to the mind. Thus, for instance, if it should be revealed to me that the next year this land would be invaded by a fleet from France, or that such and such persons would then be converted, or that I myself should then be converted, not by enabling me to argue these events from anything which now appears in Providence, but immediately suggesting in an extraordinary manner that these things would come to pass, or if it should be revealed to me that this day there is a battle fought between the armies of such and such powers in Europe, or that such a prince in Europe was this day converted, or is now in a converted state, or that one of my neighbors is converted, or that I myself am converted, not by having any other evidence of these facts, but immediate extraordinary suggestion or excitation of these ideas and a strong impression of them upon my mind. This is a revelation of secret facts by immediate suggestion, as much as if the facts were future. For the facts being past, present, or future, when not the case, as long as they are secret, hidden from my senses and reason, and not spoken of in scripture, nor known by me any other way than by immediate suggestion. If I have it revealed to me that such a revolution has come to pass this day in the Ottoman Empire, it is the very same sort of revelation as if it were revealed to me that such a revelation would come to pass there this day come twelve months. Because all one is present in the other future, yet both are equally hidden from me any other way than by immediate revelation. When Samuel told Saul that the asses which he went to seek were found, and that his father had left caring for the asses and sorrowed for him, this is by the same kind of revelation, is that by which he told Saul that in the plain of Tabor there should meet him three men going up to God to Bethel. 1 Samuel 10, 2 and 3, though one of these things was future and the other was not. So when Elisha told the king of Israel the words that the king of Syria spake in his bedchamber, it was by the same kind of revelation with that by which he foretold many things to come. It is evident that this revelation of secret facts by immediate suggestion has nothing of the nature of a spiritual and divine operation in the sense forementioned. There is nothing at all in the nature of the ideas themselves excited in the mind that is divinely excellent above the ideas of natural men, though the manner of exciting the ideas be extraordinary. In those things which are spiritual as has been shown, not only the manner of producing the effect, but the effect wrought is divine, and so vastly above all that can be in an unsanctified mind. Now simply the having an idea of facts, setting aside the manner of producing these ideas, is nothing beyond what the minds of wicked men are susceptible of, without any goodness in them, and they all either have or will have the knowledge of the greatest and most important facts that have been, are, or shall be. And as to the extraordinary manner of producing the perception of facts, even by immediate suggestion, there is nothing in it but what the minds of natural men are capable of, as is manifest in Balaam and others spoken of in the scripture. And therefore it appears that there is nothing appertaining to this immediate suggestion of secret facts that is spiritual, in the sense in which it has been proved that gracious operations are so. If there be nothing in the ideas themselves which is holy and divine, and so nothing but what may be in a mind not sanctified, 
then God can put them into the mind by immediate power without sanctifying it. And there is nothing in the idea of a rainbow of a holy and divine nature. So God, if he pleases and when he pleases, immediately, and in an extraordinary manner, may excite that idea in an unsanctified mind. So also, as there is nothing in the idea of knowledge that such particular persons are forgiven and accepted of God, and entitled to heaven, but what unsanctified minds may have, and will have, concerning many at the day of judgment, so God can, if he pleases, extraordinarily and immediately suggest this to and impress it upon an unsanctified mind now. There is no principle wanting in an unsanctified mind in order to make it capable of such an impression, nor is there anything in them necessarily to prevent such a suggestion. And if these suggestions of secret facts be attended with texts of Scripture, immediately and extraordinarily brought to mind, about other facts that seem in some respects similar, that does not make the operation to be of a spiritual and divine nature. For that suggestion of words of Scripture is no more divine than the suggestion of the facts themselves, as has been just now demonstrated, and two effects together, which are neither of them spiritual, cannot make up one complex effect spiritual. Hence it follows, from what has been already shown, that those affections which are properly founded on such immediate suggestions of secret facts are not gracious affections. Not but that it is possible that such suggestions may be the occasion or accidental cause of gracious affections, for so may a mistake and delusion, but it is never properly the foundation of gracious affections. For gracious affections, as has been shown, are all the effects of an influence and operation which is spiritual, supernatural, and divine. But there are many affections and high affections which have such revelations for their very foundation. They look upon these as spiritual discoveries, but they are a gross delusion, and this delusion is truly the spring whence their affections flow. Here it may be proper to observe, from what has been said, that what many persons call the witness of the Spirit, that they are the children of God, has nothing in it spiritual and divine, and consequently that the affections built upon it are vain and delusive. That which many call the witness of the Spirit is no other than an immediate suggestion and impression of that fact, otherwise secret, that they are made the children of God, and so that their sins are pardoned, and that God has given them a title to heaven. This kind of knowledge, knowing that a certain person is converted and delivered from hell and entitled to heaven, is no divine sort of knowledge in itself. This sort of fact requires no more divine suggestion in order to impress it on the mind than what Balaam had impressed on his mind. It requires no higher sort of idea for a man to have the apprehension of his own conversion impressed upon him than to have the apprehension of his neighbor's conversion in like manner. God, if he pleased, might impress a knowledge of this fact that he had forgiven his neighbor's sins and given him a title to heaven, as well as any other fact, without any communication of his holiness. The excellency and importance of the fact does not at all hinder a natural man's mind being susceptible of an immediate suggestion and impression of it.
Balaam had as important facts as this immediately impressed on his mind without any gracious influence, particularly the coming of Christ, his setting up his glorious kingdom, the blessedness of the spiritual Israel in his peculiar favor, and their happiness living and dying. Yea, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, had God's special favor to Abraham revealed to him, Genesis 26 and 7. He revealed to Laban his special favor to Jacob, Genesis 31, 24, and Psalm 105, 15. And if a truly good man should have an immediate revelation from God in like manner concerning his favor to his neighbor or himself, would it be any higher kind of influence? Would it be any more than a common influence of God's Spirit as a gift of prophecy and all revelation by immediate suggestion is? And though it be true that a natural man cannot have an individual suggestion from the Spirit of God that he is converted, because it is not true, yet that does not arise from the nature of the influence is too high for him. The influence, which immediately suggests this fact, when it is true, is of no different kind from that which immediately suggests other true facts, and so the kind and nature of the influence is not above what is common to natural men. But this is a mean, ignoble notion of the witness of the Spirit of God given to his dear children, to suppose that there is nothing in the nature of that influence, but what is common to natural men, altogether unsanctified, and the children of hell, and that therefore the gift itself has nothing of the holy nature or vital communication of that Spirit. This notion greatly debases that most exalted kind of operation which there is in the true witness of the Spirit. The late venerable Stoddard, in his younger time, falling in with the opinion of some others, received this notion of the witness of the Spirit by way of immediate suggestion. But in the latter part of his life, when he had more thoroughly weighed things and had more experience, he entirely rejected it, as appears by his treatise of the nature of saving conversion. Page 84, quote, the Spirit of God doth not testify to particular persons that they are godly. Some think that the Spirit of God doth testify it to some, and they ground it on Romans 8.16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. They think the Spirit reveals it by giving an inward testimony to it, and some godly men think they have had experience of it. But they may easily mistake, when the Spirit of God doth imminently stir up a spirit of faith, and sheds abroad the love of God in the heart, it is easy to mistake it for a testimony. And that is not the meaning of Paul's words. The Spirit reveals things to us by opening our eyes to see what is revealed in the Word. But the Spirit doth not reveal new truths, not revealed in the Word. The Spirit discovers the grace of God in Christ and thereby draws forth special actings of faith and love which are evidential, but it does not work in way of testimony. If God do but help us to receive the revelations in the Word, we shall have comfort enough without new revelations." Mr. Shepherd is abundant in militating against the notion of men's knowing their good estate by immediate witness of the Spirit without judging by any effect or work of the Spirit wrought on the heart, 
as an evidence and proof that persons are the children of God. Again, in his sound believer, there is a long discourse of sanctification as the chief evidence of justification, from page 221, for many pages following. I shall transcribe but a very small part of it. Quote, Tell me how you will know that you are justified. You will say by the testimony of the Spirit. And cannot the same Spirit shine upon your graces and witness that you are sanctified as well? 1 John 4, 13 and 24, 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Can the Spirit make the one clear to you and not the other? Oh, beloved, it is a sad thing to hear such questions and such cold answers also that sanctification possibly may be in evidence. Maybe. Is it not certain? End quote. Mr. Flavel also much opposes this notion of the witness of the Spirit by immediate revelation. In his sacramental meditation, speaking of the sealing of the Spirit, he says, quote, In sealing the believer, he doth not make use of an audible voice, nor the ministry of angels, nor immediate and extraordinary revelations, but he makes use of his own graces implanted in our hearts, and his own promises written in the scripture, and in this method he usually brings the doubting, trembling heart of a believer to rest and comfort, end quote. And again, quote, Assurance is produced in our souls by the reflective acts of faith. The Spirit helps us to reflect upon what hath been done by him formally upon our hearts. Hereby we know that we know him, 1 John 2, 3. To know that we know the reflex act. Now it is impossible there should be a reflex before there has been a direct act. No man can have the evidence of his faith before the habit is infused and a vital act performed. The object manner to which the Spirit seals is his own sanctifying operations, quote. Afterwards, he says, quote, Immediate ways of the Spirit's sealing are ceased. No man may now expect by any new revelation or sign from heaven by any voice or extraordinary inspiration, to have his salvation sealed, but must expect that mercy in God's ordinary way and method, searching the scriptures, examining our own hearts, and waiting on the Lord in prayer. The learned Gerson gives an instance of one that had been a long time upon the borders of despair, and at last sweetly assured and settled, he answered, not by any new revelation, but by subjecting my understanding to and comparing my heart with the written word. And Mr. Roberts, in his treatise of the covenant, speaks of another that so vehemently panted after the ceilings earnestly desired some voice from heaven, and sometimes walking in the solitary fields earnestly desired some miraculous voice from the trees or stones there. This was denied him. But in time a better was afforded in a scriptural way. End quote. End quote. And again, this method of sealing is beyond all other methods in the world. For in miraculous voices and inspirations, it is impossible there may be found some cheat or impostors of the devil. But the Spirit's witness in the heart, suitable to the revelation in the scripture, cannot deceive us. Many mischiefs have arisen from that false and delusive notion of the witness of the Spirit that it is a kind of inward voice, suggestion, 
or declaration from God to a man that he is beloved, pardoned, elected, or the like, sometimes with and sometimes without a text of Scripture. For many have been the false and vain, though very high, affections that have arisen from hence. It is to be feared that multitudes of souls have been eternally undone by it. I have therefore insisted the longer on this head. But I proceed now to a second characteristic of gracious affections. Section 2 The first objective ground of gracious affections is the transcendently excellent and amiable nature of divine things as they are in themselves, and not any conceived relation they bear to self or self-interest. I say that the supremely excellent nature of divine things is the first or primary and original objective foundation of the spiritual affections of true saints. For I do not suppose that all relation which divine things bear to themselves and their own particular interest are wholly excluded from all influence in their gracious affections. For this we may have, and indeed has, a secondary and consequential influence in those affections that are truly holy and spiritual, as I shall show by and by. It was before observed that the affection of love is, as it were, the fountain of all affection, and particularly that Christian love is the fountain of all gracious affections. Now the divine excellency of God and of Jesus Christ, the word of God, his works, ways, and so on, is the primary reason why a true saint loves these things and not any supposed interest that he has in them, or any conceived benefit that he has received or shall receive from them. Some say that all love arises from self-love, and that it is impossible in the nature of things for any man to love God or any other being, but that love to himself must be the foundation of it. But I humbly suppose it is for want of consideration they say so, they argue that whoever loves God and so desires his glory, or the enjoyment of him, desires these things as his own happiness. The glory of God and the beholding and the enjoying of his perfections are considered as things agreeable to him, tending to make him happy. He places his happiness in them and desires them as objects which, if obtained, would fill him with delight and joy and so make him happy. And so, they say, it is from self-love, or a desire of his own happiness, that he desires God should be glorified, and desires to behold and enjoy his glorious perfections. But then they ought to consider a little further, and inquire how the man came to place his happiness in God's being glorified, and in contemplating and enjoying God's perfections. There is no doubt but that, after God's glory and beholding, his perfections are become agreeable to him, he will desire them as he desires his own happiness. But how came these things to be so agreeable to him, that he esteems it his highest happiness to glorify God? Is not this the fruit of love? Must not a man first love God or have his heart united to him before he will esteem God's good his own, and before he will desire the glorifying and enjoying of God as his happiness? It is not strong arguing, because after a man has his heart united to God in love, and is the fruit of this, he desires his glory and enjoyment as his own happiness, 
that therefore desire of this happiness must needs be the cause and foundation of his love, unless it be strong arguing that because a father begat a son, therefore his son certainly begat him. If after a man loves God, it will be a consequence and fruit of this, that even love to his happiness will cause him to desire the glorifying and enjoying of God, it will not thence follow that this very exercise of self-love went before his love to God, and that his love to God was a consequence and fruit of that. Something else entirely distinct from self-love might be the cause of this a change made in the views of his mind and relish of his heart, whereby he apprehends a beauty, glory, and supreme good in God's nature as it is in itself. This may be the thing that first draws his heart to him and causes his heart to be united to him prior to all considerations of his own interest or happiness, although after this and as a fruit of it he necessarily seeks his interest and happiness in God. There is a kind of love or affection towards persons or things which does properly arise from self-love, a preconceived relation to himself, or some respect already manifested by another to him, or some benefit already received or depended on, is truly the first foundation of his love. What perceives any relish of or delight in the nature and qualities inherent in the being beloved as beautiful and amiable. When the first thing that draws a man's benevolence to another is a beholding of those qualifications and properties in him which appear to him lovely in themselves, love arises in a very different manner than when at first arises from some gift bestowed by another, as a judge loves and favors a man that has bribed him or from the relation he supposes another has to him, as a man who loves his child. When love to another arises thus, it arises truly and properly from self-love. That kind of affection to God or Jesus Christ, which thus properly arises from self-love, cannot be a truly gracious and spiritual love, as appears from what has been said already. For self-love is a principle entirely natural, and as much in the hearts of devils as angels, and therefore surely nothing that is a mere result of it can be supernatural and divine in the manner before described. Thomas Shepard writes, There is a natural love to Christ as to one that doth thee good, and for thine own ends, and spiritual for himself whereby the Lord only is exalted, in quote. Christ plainly speaks of natural love as what is nothing beyond the love of wicked men, Luke 6.32. If you love them that love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And the devil himself knew that a mercenary respect to God only for benefits received or depended on, which is all one, is worthless in the sight of God, Job 1, 9, and 10. Does Job serve God for naught? Has not thou made an hedge about him and about his house? And so on. God would never have implicitly allowed the objection to have been good, in case the accusation had been true, by allowing that matter to be tried, and Job to be so dealt with that it might appear in the event whether Job's respect to God was thus mercenary or not, whereas a proof of the goodness of his respect was put upon that issue. 
It is unreasonable to think otherwise than that the first foundation of a true love to God is that whereby he is in himself lovely or worthy to be loved, or the supreme loveliness of his nature. This is certainly what makes him chiefly amiable. What chiefly makes a man or any creature lovely is his excellency. And so what chiefly renders God lovely, and must undoubtedly be the chief grounds of true love, is his excellency. God's nature, or the divinity, is infinitely excellent. Yea, it is infinite beauty, brightness and glory itself. But how can that be true love of this excellent and lovely nature which is not built on the foundation of its true loveliness? How can that be true love of beauty and brightness which is not for beauty and brightness' sake? How can that be a true prizing of that which is in itself infinitely worthy and precious which is not for the sake of its worthiness and preciousness? This infinite excellency of the divine nature as it is in itself is the true ground of all that is good in God in any respect. But how can a man truly love God without loving him for that excellency which is the foundation of all that is good or desirable in him? They whose affection to God is founded first on his profitableness to them begin at the wrong end. They regard God only for the utmost limit of the stream of divine good, where it touches them and reaches their interest. They have no respect to that infinite glory of God's nature, which is the original good and the true fountain of all good, and of loveliness of every kind. A natural principle of self-love may be the foundation of great affections towards God and Christ, without seeing anything of the beauty and glory of the divine nature. There is a certain gratitude that is a mere natural thing. Gratitude is one of the natural affections, as well as anger. And there is a gratitude that arises from self-love, very much in the same manner that anger does. Anger in men is an affection excited against or in opposition to another for something in him that crosses self-love. Gratitude is an affection one has towards another for loving or gratifying him or for something in him that suits self-love. And there may be a kind of gratitude without any true or proper love, as there may be anger without hatred as in parents towards their children, with whom they may be angry, and yet at the same time have a strong habitual love to them. Of this gratitude Christ declares, Luke 6, Sinners love those that love them. Even the publicans, who were some of the most carnal and profligate sort of men, Matthew 5:46. This is a principle wrought upon bribery and unjust judges, and which even the brute beasts exercise. A dog will love his master that is kind to him. And we see in innumerable instances that mere nature is sufficient to excite gratitude in men or to affect their hearts with thankfulness to others for kindnesses received and sometimes towards them against whom at the same time they have a habitual enmity. Thus Saul was once and again greatly affected and even dissolved with gratitude towards David for sparing his life and yet remained an habitual enemy to him. And as men from mere nature may be thus affected towards men, so they may towards God. 
Nothing hinders but that the same self-love may work after the same manner towards God as towards men. And we have manifest instances of it in Scripture, as indeed the children of Israel, who sang God's praises at the Red Sea, but soon forgot his works. Naaman, the Syrian, was greatly affected with the miraculous cure of his leprosy. His heart was engaged thenceforward to worship the God who had healed him, excepting it would expose him to be ruined in his temporal interest. So was Nebuchadnezzar greatly affected with God's goodness to him, and restoring him to his reason and kingdom after his dwelling with the beasts. Gratitude being thus a natural principle, ingratitude is so much the more vile and heinous because it shows a dreadful prevalence of wickedness when it even overbears and suppresses the better principles of human nature. It is mentioned as an evidence of the high degree of wickedness in many of the heathen that they are without natural affection, Romans 2.31 but that the lack of gratitude or natural affection are evidences of a high degree of vice is no argument that all gratitude and natural affection has a nature of virtue or saving grace. Self-love, through the exercise of a mere natural gratitude, may be the foundation of a sort of love to God many ways. A kind of love may arise from a false notion of God that men have some way imbibed, as though he were the only goodness and mercy, and no revenging justice, or as though the exercise of his goodness were necessary and not free and sovereign, or as though his goodness were dependent on what is in them, and as it were constrained by them. Men on such grounds as these may love a god of their own forming in their imaginations, when they are far from loving such a god as reigns in the heaven." Again, self-love may be the foundation of an affection in men towards God through a great insensibility of their state with regard to God, and for lack of conviction of conscience, to make them sensible how dreadfully they have provoked him to anger. They have no sense of the heinousness of sin as against God, and of the infinite and terrible opposition of the holy nature of God against it. Having formed in their minds such a God as suits them, and thinking him to be such an one as themselves, who favors and agrees with them, they may like him very well, and feel a sort of love to him, when they are far from loving the true God. And men's affections may be much moved towards God from self-love by some remarkable outward benefits received from him, as it was with Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar, and the children of Israel at the Red Sea. Again, a very high affection towards God may and often does arise in men from an opinion of the favor and love of God to them is the first foundation of their love to him. After awakenings and distress, through fears of hell, they may suddenly get a notion through some impression on their imagination or immediate suggestion with or without text of scripture, or by some other means that God loves them, has forgiven their sins and made them his children, and this is the first thing that causes their affections to flow towards God in Jesus Christ. And then upon this foundation many things in God may appear lovely to them, and Christ may seem excellent. And if such persons are asked whether God appears lovely and amiable in himself, they would perhaps readily answer, Yes, 
when indeed if a matter be strictly examined, this good opinion of God was purchased and paid for, and the distinguishing and infinite benefits they imagine they receive from God. They allow God to be lovely in himself, no otherwise, than that he has forgiven and accepted them, loves them above most in the world, and has engaged to improve all his infinite power and wisdom in preferring, dignifying, and exalting them, and will do for them just as they would have him. When once they are firm in this apprehension, it is easy to own God and Christ to be lovely and glorious, and to admire and extol them. It is easy for them to own Christ to be a lovely person, and the best in the world, when they are first firm in the notion that he, the Lord of the universe, is captivated with love to them, has his heart swallowed up in them, prizes them far beyond most of their neighbors, has loved them from eternity and died for them, and will make them reign in eternal glory with him in heaven. When this is the case with carnal men, their very loss will make him seem lovely. Pride itself will prejudice them in favor of that which they call Christ. Selfish, proud man naturally calls that lovely, which greatly contributes to his interest and gratifies his ambition. And as this sort of person begins, so they go on. Their affections are raised from time to time primarily on this foundation of self-love and a conceit of God's love to them. Many have a false notion of communion with God as though it were carried on by impulses and whispers and external representations immediately made to their imagination, the things they take to be manifestations of God's great love to them, and evidences of their high exaltation above others, and so their affections are often renewedly set a-going. Whereas the exercises of true and holy love in the saints arise in another way, they do not first see that God loves them, and then see that he is lovely, but they first see that God is lovely and that Christ is excellent and glorious. Their hearts are first captivated with this view, and the exercises of their love are wont from time to time to begin here, and to arise primarily from these views, and then consequentially they see God's love and great favor to them. Quote, there is a scene of Christ after a man believes which is Christ in his love, and so on. But I speak of that first sight of him that precedes the second act of faith, and it is an intuitive or real sight of him as he is in his glory. End quote, Shepherd's Parable of the Ten Virgins. The saints' affections begin with God, and self-love has a hand in these affections consequentially and secondarily only. On the contrary, false affections begin with self, and an acknowledgment of an excellency in God, and an affectedness with it, is only consequential and dependent. And the love of the true saint, God is the lowest foundation. The love of the excellency of his nature is the foundation of all the affections which come afterwards, wherein self-love is concerned as an handmaid. On the contrary, the hypocrite lays himself at the bottom of all as the first foundation and lays on God as a superstructure, and even his acknowledgment of God's glory itself depends on his regard to his private interest. 
self-love may not only influence men so as to cause them to be affected with God's kindness to them separately, but also with God's kindness to them as parts of a community. A natural principle of self-love without any other may be sufficient to make a man concerned for the interest of the nation to which he belongs. As, for instance, in the present war, self-love may make natural men rejoice at the successes of our nation, and sorry for their disadvantages, they being concerned as members of the body. The same natural principles may extend even to the world of mankind, and might be affected with the benefits the inhabitants of the earth have, beyond those of the inhabitants of other planets, if we knew that such there were, and knew how it was with them. So this principle may cause men to be affected with the benefits mankind have received beyond the fallen angels, with the wonderful goodness of God in giving his Son to die for fallen men, with the marvelous love of Christ in suffering great things for us, and with the great glory they hear that God has provided in heaven for us. Looking on themselves as persons concerned, interested, and so highly favored, the same principle of natural gratitude may influence men here, as in the case of personal benefits. But these things by no means imply that all gratitude to God is a mere natural thing, and that there is no such thing as a spiritual gratitude which is a holy and divine affection. They imply no more than that there is a gratitude which is merely natural, and that when persons have affections towards God only, or primarily for benefits received, their affection is only the exercise of natural gratitude. There is doubtless such a thing as a gracious gratitude, which greatly differs from all that gratitude which natural men experience. It differs in the following respects. Number one. True gratitude or thankfulness to God for His kindness to us arises from a foundation laid before of love to God for what He is in Himself, whereas a natural gratitude has no such antecedent foundation. The gracious stirrings of grateful affection to God for kindness received always are from a stock of love already in the heart, established in the first place on other grounds. God's own excellency, and hence the affections are disposed to flow out on occasions of God's kindness. The saint, having seen the glory of God and his heart overcome by it, and captivated into a supreme love to him on that account, his heart hereby becomes tender and easily affected with kindness received. If a man has no love to another, yet gratitude may be moved by some extraordinary kindness as in Saul towards David. But this is not the same in kind as a man's gratitude to a dear friend, for whom his heart had before a high esteem and love. Self-love is not excluded from a gracious gratitude. The saints love God for his kindness to them. Psalm 116.1 I love the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. But something else is included. Another love prepares a way and lays a foundation for these grateful affections. Number two, in a gracious gratitude, men are affected with the attribute of God's goodness and free grace, not only as they are concerned in it, or as it affects their interest, 
but as a part of the glory and beauty of God's nature, that wonderful and unparalleled grace of God, which is manifested in the work of redemption and shines forth in the face of Jesus Christ, is infinitely glory in itself and appears so to the angels. It is a great part of the moral perfection and beauty of God's nature. This would be glorious whether it were exercised towards us or not. And a saint who exercises a gracious thankfulness for it sees it to be so and delights in it as such. Yea, his concern in it serves the more to engage his mind and raises attention and affection. Self-love here assists as an handmaid being subservient to higher principles, to lead forth the mind to contemplation and to heighten joy and love. God's kindness to them is a glass set before them, wherein to behold the beautiful attribute of God's goodness, the exercises and displays of this attribute, by this means, are brought near to them and set right before them, so that in a holy thankfulness to God, the concern our interest has in God's goodness is not the first foundation of our being affected with it, that was laid in the heart before. In love to God for His excellency in Himself, that makes the heart tender and susceptible of such impressions from His goodness to us. Nor is our own interest or the benefits we have received the only or the chief objective ground of the present exercises of the affection, but rather God's goodness is part of the beauty of his nature. The manifestations of that lovely attribute, however set immediately before our eyes, in the exercises of it for us, are a special occasion of the mind's attention to that beauty at that time, and this may serve to heighten the affection. Some may perhaps be ready to object against the whole that has been said by that text First 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. As though this implied that God's love to the true saints were the first foundation of their love to him. In answer to this, I would observe that the Apostle's drift in these words is to magnify the love of God to us from hence, that he loved us while we had no love to him, as will be manifest to anyone who compares this verse and the two following with the ninth, tenth, and eleventh verses. And that God loved us when we had no love to him, the Apostle proves by this argument that God's love to the elect is the ground of their love to him. It is so in three ways. One... The saint's love to God is a fruit of God's love to them, as it is a gift of that love. God gave them a spirit of love to him because he loved them from eternity. His love to his elect is the foundation of their regeneration and the whole of their redemption. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 
1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.